So Uncle Dave and her grandfather had to turn in early, but Patton proved to be the gift that kept on giving. Stick around to hear me, Danny, and our dad discuss the surprising reason the movie was filmed in Spain, take our best guess at the fate of the war sans Patton, and share some personal thoughts on the value of war movies and the possibility of enlistment. Enjoy. Fixed fortifications are monuments to the stupidity of man. And I love that quote because you can really apply it to many different things. Remember, Patton, born in the 19th century, he was an old cavalryman. Cavalry are about mobility and surrounding the enemy. I want you to think about the French and the Maginot Line. They created this giant barricade, an impregnable wall in order to prevent World War I from happening ever again. So what did the Germans do at the start of World War II? They built a lot of wheeled vehicles, and they drove right around the wall. All of the guns, all of the big, heavy guns, all of the armament was on one side of the wall. And the Germans, doing an end run all the way to the other side, completely were able to uh, capture or kill all of the Frenchmen that were in that fortification. It was a monument to the stupidity of man. Wow. I went back and found the scene where he's standing on the battlefield and giving commentary, and he says to Bradley, I fought in many guises, many names, but always me. It's one of those wonderful moments where you're simultaneously in awe of him and somewhat frightened for his state of mind. Some people, in order to be geniuses, need to be on the cusp of madness. And that's just such a brilliant place where the veil between those two things was worn very thin. The awe and wonder won out in that scene. Awesome. Another line I like is, Rommel, I read your book. (laughs) You know, it's like, I played you like a fiddle. (laughs) I like that line. Me too. I really also enjoyed, there's Jensen, who seems to be sort of a private aide to Patton for the beginning part of the movie, just like a young, very all-American looking boy type, optimistic, and like a soldier who hasn't experienced too much yet, and he really looks up to Patton. And when he's killed in battle, Patton gives what is at first a sort of restrained eulogy, and then it becomes this wonderful, passionate speech about one man's life and what it meant to him. And I thought that was a great character establishing moment early on to show that as much as Patton believes in his own importance, he also feels the weight of every death that he witnesses. Yes. I think that scene has uh, Patton following the Jeep with the body of the boy, just a small poignant procession in the middle of Africa. Yeah, I really appreciated that the movie opens up in North Africa, Tunisia, Morocco. Those are landscapes I haven't seen very often in World War II movies, and it was really nice to get a little flavor of the local cultures. It's funny that you say that, that uh, you enjoyed seeing scenes of North Africa. Let's just remind ourselves where this movie was filmed. This movie was never, ever filmed in North Africa. It was filmed in Spain. (laughs) Oh, yeah, uh, there were no scenes shot in, in North Africa. And that's the uh, film magic. 
you're asking all these Bedouins to get all dressed up and everything. But the cameraman was never where you thought he was, like Tunisia. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why they chose Spain is um, Spain seemed to be quite enthusiastic about lending out their soldiers. The soldiers could be used basically for free for making movies. It was sort of like a like an employee benefit, a, a perk. Hey, if you're a soldier and rather than digging a latrine today, we're going to have you in a movie. How would you like to be a movie star? Today's your day to get blown up. I find that quite fascinating. How come we didn't use U.S. soldiers? How come we didn't use Germans? And the answer is because the Spanish guys were free. And they look like us. And they look like us. That's right. <laughs> All right. I've got a quick question about casting choices. I think there might be two or three women who have speaking roles. We've got the leader of the British club that has invited Patton and gives a short speech. We've got the lady with the aggressive little dog. In movies like these, do you think it would benefit things to have more roles for women? You know, if you have a movie like Pearl Harbor starring Ben Affleck, and so you've got this handsome, hunky guy that needs a love interest in order to uh, attract a wider audience to actually buy expensive tickets to go see that thing. Yeah, I get it. And, you know, that's a war where women were not in the trenches, but they were nurses and they were in supporting functions. But in this case, when most of the movie is right there in the battle scenes, I don't feel like it's a negative that there were not too many women. You know, you might compare this movie, say, to uh, like a Saving Private Ryan, where there are some scenes where there might be a, a woman part of a family. But um, I, I, I don't see it as being a, a negative of the, the film. I thought Danny was going to say something, but he didn't. Oh, I mean, I don't know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I was thinking about it, like, as much as I would love for there to be more female representation in the movie, I feel like more female representation would be dishonest to the truth, because at least from the limited narrative I have of the story, it appears as if women did not play a major role. Obviously, their role is always underplayed in the history book, so I cannot confirm that. But at least according to the story, it feels like simply the narrative just doesn't allow for much more female representation. And also, I feel like a lot of the treatment towards women in any way in this time period was not very positive, to say the least. And so I feel like if they were to have any accurate representation of women during this time period, it would have only been regressive. So by having less of it, it takes away more regressive behavior towards women, if that makes sense. And I agree with you both that if it doesn't serve the narrative in any way, then it doesn't make sense to add something that would actually detract from the story. For instance, I would not be pleased as a female viewer of movies if they added a love interest for Patton just to have a female role. The historical representation's accuracy is important, and I think the authentic portrayal of women's contributions is important as well. Because if we tell a revised version of history in which we portray everything as equal and happy and harmonized, then we will forget what the past was actually like. And I think also forget the lessons that the past should have taught us. By the way, uh, Patton was in World War I too. And he, he led the uh, tank training. He was a tanker in two wars. And he was 29 years old in World War I. So think about that, where many uh, fighting men and women 
tend to be 18, 19, 20 years old. He was an old guy in World War I at 29 years old. The other thing to keep in mind is he actually got wounded in World War I. I don't know what the extent of his injuries were, but I wonder if his injury might have maybe caused him to be a little bit strange. Interesting. Or maybe taking it in a different direction. What if he didn't get wounded in World War I? What if he got killed? How would have World War II ended up differently? I don't have enough historical knowledge to be able to say for sure, but based on the context of the movie, it certainly seems like the U.S. would have been in trouble, which is remarkable when you consider they were only up against Germany at that point. It is incredible to think back how widespread Germany had managed to make its military and maintain that for a while against an alliance of many nations. Yeah, you know, uh, Hitler made a big mistake. Uh, he decided to attack Russia. He saw that uh, Lenin conducted a big purge. It eliminated most of the leaders of the military, the officers. The, the officers were the upper class. And so he wiped out all of the talent all at once. And Hitler perceived that as being the perfect opportunity for Germany to just roll over Russia. And boy, was he wrong. Yes, they made lots of progress. Yes, they uh, inflicted lots of death. But at the end of the day, Russia was just too large and too populous. And it was just by uh, the power of so many people, as well as uh, the, uh, the materials that were being shipped by the United States, by the way, that helped Russia survive. So the mistake the Germans made was fighting a two-front war. They had to dedicate too much of their resources to the Eastern Front. And if that did not happen, I would contend that today it might be called the United States of Germany. <gasps> okay, so what you're saying is Patton was not the deciding factor. It was Hitler's decision to invade Russia. So you think without Patton, the Allies still would have ultimately won, if maybe on a longer time frame? Yes there would have been more loss of life for uh, Americans. And so ultimately, here I've been talking about how just stupendous it is that a human being can go to bed at night knowing that he committed 10,000 young souls to death. I think at the end of the day, Patton actually saved American lives. Mm -hmm. He ran his business with urgency. He was always pushing, pushing, pushing. And you always keep your enemy on their heels. Don't let them react. Don't give them time to coordinate, to uh, reorganize. And that was Patton's way of doing war. And it works. Why tell stories like this via dramatic movies instead of documentaries? Why is it more powerful to have Patton acted by George C. Scott instead of assembling newsreels, old video clips, old interviews? For the same reason that uh, people don't watch documentaries. There's a small subset of people that will watch historical footage like that, but not the vast majority of uh, Americans. I think they're more interested in being entertained. A documentary does not entertain. It educates. It informs. Instead, there are sitcoms, you know, Friends, The Big Bang Theory, Mad Men. You know, how come there aren't more channels? 
of uh, documentaries out there. Last I checked, there is uh, more effort, more money spent on creating new content than there is in recycling the old. I think naturally as a kid, I wouldn't have been attracted to war movies, but because it was something I was exposed to through you and through my grandfather and through other members of my family, it came to be an important part of my life that has informed my teaching as a history and English teacher. This movie in particular, I sort of associated with like a serious brand of film that was more about one man's journey than just being a synopsis of World War II. And I think that's still the case. As a young man, I really thought you could become a hero, person who becomes a historical figure through military conflict, through war. I mean, think of George Washington. Think of Ulysses Grant, Robert E. Lee. Think of Rommel. Think of Patton. Think of Eisenhower. How is it that we have all these military books and movies and stories I can name more military heroes than I can think of political heroes. But as I got older, I think the realism of war movies has become more and more, let's use the word lurid. When you look at a, an older war movie, I can remember one, you know, when someone was shot, they would grab their heart and then they would fall down. And they would typically have one or two last sentences before they expired. But Films more recently, movies like Saving Private Ryan, even Schindler's List and others, show you just how frightening and inglorious the experience really is for the average fighting person. It's just a terrible end. And there's scenes on the beach in the opening moments of Saving Private Ryan where a guy's guts are all out of his abdomen. And you don't wish that on anybody. That is more the outcome for 99.9% .9 of military people, as opposed to one-tenth of one percent who had a grand old time, maybe fighting a little bit, drinking a lot, and marching around in uniform. The irony is, as much as I love war movies, I have become a peacemonger in my later years, that I would do anything in my power to avoid wars. Wars are ridiculously a bad decision. No one wins in a war. Everybody loses. That's my relationship with war movies. If anything, they've made me, I hope, wiser and more aware that this is not an experience where you become a hero or happy. Even Audie Murphy, who came back as a hero, he ended up being plagued by nightmares for the rest of his life. He would have to sleep in the garage because he could not be in the same room with his wife because of his nightmares every night. Danny? I mean, I don't know. I feel very unqualified to answer this question. Just talk about your relationship to war movies. I mean, I personally think they're very important. And I think it's very important that we preserve history in general and learn from its lessons and its mistakes and what we've done in the past and how we got to where we are now. I'm personally not the biggest fan of war movies myself. It's just not something I'm super interested in, but it's definitely something I can appreciate and can understand why someone would be very interested in it.
I have a personal question for both of you. So have you never considered enlisting or have you ever pictured what you would be like as a soldier if you got drafted or something? Anybody? I've thought about it, but I mean, not too much thought has gone into it. And I feel like I have bigger and better opportunities elsewhere. And drafting is just not something my generation has even needed to worry about. Oh, really? You didn't even think about it with stuff going on with North Korea in the last few years? No, we haven't needed to draft since oh. Vietnam, I'm pretty sure. Well, I know, but there was some talk. No, yeah, I, especially with the point of technology where, especially with the drone technology of it's much less important the number of people you have. It's much more the quantity and level of technology you have nowadays. You know, as for me, I thought very hard about going to Annapolis, the uh, U.S. Naval Academy in Maryland. I thought that would be really cool. Number one, you get a free college education. Number two, you get to serve in U.S. Armed Forces. And number three, I always thought that the Navy was the safest place to be. After all, you got to sleep in a bed every night. You're on a ship. How often do you hear about ships getting into a battle? Not often. You know, they float around and, you know, you got to swab the decks. But it seemed like a a pretty safe way to be in the, the military, where the Army just struck me as being a very, very hazardous place to be. There's always someone coming up with another clever killing machine, whether it's a daisy cutter bomb or a machine gun that can shoot 700 bullets a minute so that it can shred a body in in two. These things all I found to be very distasteful. So I thought the Navy would be a great way to get an education, serve my country, and then come out as a veteran and have a great job and do things. What sort of made me stop thinking about it is the only thing you could major in at the U.S. Naval Academy was engineering electrical engineering and mechanical engineering, and that was about it. I thought, that sucks. I was really hoping for a more well-rounded education, but that was not to be had at the U.S. Naval Academy. So I, I didn't pursue it. And if you know anything about the military academies, you need to get a reference from a state senator, well, a U.S. senator. Oh. They need to recommend you. It requires some work to get that recommendation. And of course, you need to be athletic. That sort of appealed to me, actually, that you're not just competitive academically, you are competitive athletically as well. I'll share my answer to this question, too. Despite growing up in an era where women were not in combat roles, I thought about what would it be like if there was a draft and women were included, or what if I had the option. For the first time, my friend group was a blend of women and men, and not just women. And some of the wonderful men who have become my friends are sensitive, non-athletic types. And I thought, my God, if they got drafted, I would want to volunteer in their place. (laughs) But no, totally. Some of the things that appeal to you absolutely appeal to me as well. I've always thought that if I could just do boot camp for the training and discipline and camaraderie and athleticism of it without having to serve in combat, there's something about the idea of being in sort of a a brotherhood of soldiers that appeals to me, though I wouldn't want to be on the front lines. Yeah, I've had very similar, almost like exact same thoughts as that. You know, a really good example is swim team. Would you really swim four hours a day by yourself? The answer is no. 
you require the camaraderie and the peer pressure of a team. When you're doing it with a group of other people, all of a sudden, the entire group accomplish more together than they do separately. And that is the total operating mechanism of a military. To break you down from being the egotistical individual that you are and make you rely on the person who is to your left and who is to your right, your foxhole buddies are the people that you're fighting for. You're no longer even fighting for your country when you are inches from death when people are throwing hand grenades and shooting machine guns at you, all that matters is the guy right next to you. You know what's really interesting is I wonder if we can apply that same logic to our situation right now during the COVID-19 outbreak when people are in quarantine. People who are normally in classrooms together are having to do work on their own, and they're struggling without the peer pressure, without the camaraderie. People who normally work in offices together have to work at home. You're saying people achieve more together and are pressured to do so. So doesn't it stand to reason that during social distancing, of course we're not going to do as good a job. Of course people aren't going to work as long of hours. And so that's a primary disruption of the social structure that has been built up to this point. Imagine this. Someone says, hey, Danny Berry, you're going to be in the military, but it's not a big deal. You get to stay at home. We're just asking you to show up for a couple of hours, do some push-ups, and be given a bayonet, and you stick it into a sack of straw or something, and then you get to go home. Well, what you find out is you are not immersed in the experience. You need to eat with these people. You need to sleep with these people. You need to be immersed in basic training where they break you down. They make you cry. They make you hurt. And if you just do it part-time, if you get to sleep in the comfort of your bed, if you get to use your cell phone in order to play your video games, that is not a group experience where you bind together like the strong bonds in molecules. That's the whole concept of group training. You need to eliminate the distractions of life. And that's why this whole online education and all these Zoom meetings tend to be not as impactful as the real thing, face-to-face -face in an environment without distraction. So uh, just keep in mind, your grandfather was in the military, and he went through basic training, and he ended up being a sergeant. And I've sent you photos of him. Yeah, that is pretty cool. Yeah, but he was never in a situation where a shot was fired in anger. How do you think he feels about that? Uh, that he wasn't in war? Yeah. Oh, I think he's quite happy about that. He was smart enough to know that uh, people were looking to avoid being where people uh, wanted to shoot you dead. So he was quite happy that the Korean War was coming to an end. Mm. I think very few people ultimately uh, are looking to die for their country. Even George Patton described that in his opening speech. What I've learned is the military is like a bureaucracy. And there's a bureaucrat who's ending up making a decision as to whether you live or die, as to whether you are put in a position of danger. And you know what? I really can't stand that, that some nameless, faceless person is just moving a chess piece on a board 
and I could become cannon fodder the next day. Yeah. And never have the pleasure of raising a family. Kids like you. Aww. <laughs> I'm going to take that one step further and bring up drones, which Danny raised. To me, even more frightening than the notion of an armchair general is the notion that it's drones versus humans. If you have a battlefield or a battle in which one side has technology and is risking no lives, that disturbs me. That kind of concept was featured in a Schwarzenegger movie, Terminator. It is describing precisely what you are saying, where a Terminator machine, a robot, is just to seek out the enemy, which happens in this case to be a bunch of human beings. And you see with grim, gruesome detail what the outcome is. So yeah, you're right. Now you're entering into a topic for another day, which is where the U.S. is becoming more and more mechanized, where the U.S. is using more and more machines and robots and self-navigating devices of destruction. Does that make us the good guys or the bad guys? Right. Uh, the Terminator movie was very clear who the bad guys were. Okay. Got one more question that I think might come with an easy answer. Do you think there will ever be an end to wars? When I grew up, my mom would always say, you know, can't we just all get along? The idea was to achieve harmony. And I thought harmony was achievable on most days. But as I've grown older, I unfortunately have developed a darker picture of things, that the natural state is actually conflict. There is always conflict. And to achieve harmony is this vision that you try every day of your life to accomplish and I'm sorry to tell you, you will die trying. Conflict is reality. Whether it's a person who just took something of yours, or someone who's vying with you for a promotion, or anything, there is all sorts of conflict in our lives. There is no such thing as perfect harmony. That's the exact argument that pro-anarchists use. Oh my God, you've outed our father as a secret anarchist. <laughs> I will say I definitely do agree with that. But I was actually thinking about this circumstantially earlier in the conversation. And I think that the classic definition of war, or at least what we know wars to look like, might actually already be outdated. And I feel like we're not going to have another World War II or World War One or any previous war like that ever again, really. Of course, there will always be conflict. There will always be disagreements. I mean, there's always issues between countries and even America can't even hold itself together, especially with the recent events. But I feel like, for example, of course, we declared war on terrorism, but that war doesn't even look anything like World War II. And even I feel like at this point, many of the so-called wars that will be shown in the future will be superpowers compared to much smaller countries, or at least countries with much less power, which obviously that dynamic works much differently, much more like the Vietnam War or the issues in Iraq. Whereas if two superpowers come into such a severe disagreement, I feel like, again, with technology, with the mutually assured destruction, with the 
destroying power that each country has, that the war was not even going to closely resemble what it looked like in the past, where first of all, again, there'll be much more technology fighting technology. Again, we're assuming like two superpowers. And there will never be another war like World War II ever again. I think you're right. And I also agree with your assertion that war is going to look very, very different. As a matter of fact, there are several that might say to you that we're already at war. But war can take, conflict can take different forms. Something that you would consider to be a benign example is currency exchange warfare, where a country will diminish the value of their own currency so that their products look cheaper than the products made in another country, which would then prompt people to buy the products from the cheaper currency. Well, you can play that game all day long, and it doesn't help with the stability of the world. You know, other things that are more regarded as your conventional kind of war would be something like like an electromagnetic pulse. We've heard a lot that the Russians have got a plan to wipe out the infrastructure here in the United States using EMP, electromagnetic pulse, to wipe out our electrical grid, that our electrical grid is not protected against that kind of warfare. So just imagine how much you rely on electricity including this way that we're interacting today. What if that EMP were to fry out your laptop, including your computer's memory? Now you've lost all of your work. Now you've lost all of your capability and maybe even your ability to make war in conventional ways. And then finally, there's bioterrorism. How hard would it really be to poison the water? This pandemic should be a real wake-up call for us all. Do you see what happens when only 100,000 Americans die? That's a small fraction of our country, but it has crippled our country, our economic power, as well as the economic lifeblood of the rest of the world. So the conclusion you come to is, as strong as you think our country is, with the pandemic has made us realize just how fragile there's this row of dominoes that fall one after another people losing their jobs people losing their ability to eat and maybe to shelter themselves where some of this is not temporary some of it becomes permanent so i agree with the statement that warfare can come in different forms and it will and by the way you know that Patton always had this notion of fighting on a front and going around the enemy. Osama bin Laden proved to us there's no such thing as a front in a modern war, that the attack can come anywhere, including on our home soil. So be ready for that. I was gonna say that I think the only way there would be no more war on Earth is if we're having it somewhere else instead. Space Force. Space Force. Trump, Trump had it right. No, that doesn't mean it's right. All I know is I'm going to go see the movie with Steve Carell, Space Force. <laughs> I think it might be a TV show. Oh, it is? Oh, I'm going to show up to the wrong place then. I have got to get YouTube to come down and film this. <laughs> That's you right now. <laughs> One of my favorite lines.
If you recognize that quote at the end, then you know what's coming up next week. Tune in for discussion of the landmark TV show about workplace drama, The Office. You might be thinking, all nine seasons in just one episode? That sounds pretty hard. That's what she said. See you then. Barry Family Picks Flicks is produced by me, Rebecca Barry. Music on today's show includes The Brave and the Bold by Matan Govari and Rise by Clemens Rue.